Go ahead and turn with me to Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel 22, and we're going to look at a passage, really just one verse there. Um, And then we're going to get to Daniel 6. This is in your Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah. You have Lamentations, Ezekiel's in there. Ezekiel 22. And then we'll flip to Daniel 6 in a little bit. It was June 17th, 1782. June 17th, 1782. A letter written to George Washington. Yes, that one was signed at the bottom, a moderate Whig. The author, who is presumably Stephen Case, he wrote in this pamphlet, he he wrote the pamphlet in 1779, but was published in 82-83, Here was the title of the pamphlet he wrote to George Washington, General George Washington. This was the title, Defensive Arms Vindicated and the Lawfulness of the American War Made Manifest. That was the title. Case dedicated this work to the George Washington, and in it he makes the case that the American War for Independence, which was actually called by the British at the time the Presbyterian Revolt, interestingly enough, the War for Independence was a righteous cause, he says. It was a righteous cause. To quote the piece, listen carefully. First, he says this, I do allow that the ordinance of the magistracy, which is of God, is not to be resisted, no, not so much as by disobedience or non-obedience, nay, not so much as mentally, by cursing in the heart. And he quotes Ecclesiastes 10.20. He goes on, he says, But a person clothed therewith, it's kind of old English, um, the person who is ordained of God, right, to be a civil magistrate, the person clothed therewith, abusing his power, may be so far resisted. But tyrants or magistrates turning tyrants are not God's ordinances. And there is no hazard of damnation for refusing to obey their unjust commands. But rather the hazard of that is walking willingly after the commandment. I have been building an entire vindication, if you will, for how Christians should see the world, how Christians should engage in politics. If I were writing back in the 16th and 17th century, here's what I have, ta- if, here's what I have titled my book if I had written on this stuff that I've been talking about in this series. Towards a biblical justification for political engagement as revealed in scripture, built upon the authority of the word, the application of biblical law, and the advancement of the glorious kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, back then, back then, book titles were very, very long. Okay, so I'm going to have a campaign. I think we need to make books great again by making titles longer. But I digress. I have sought to show you in this series several things. One, God's word is where we look to for everything, including politics, and I would argue especially politics. Two, there's no neutrality in God's covenantal world. Not a place exists where something is neutral in terms of its agreement or disagreement with God. So everything is covenantal. Everything stems from him. And everything owes its allegiance to him, ultimately. Three, Jesus is Messiah the Prince. He brought his kingdom, and his kingdom has implications for all things. He has been established on high as King of kings and Lord of lords, and that means more than just words. Fourth, 
The law of God is beautiful. It is not evil. It's a reflection of his character, nor is it something we should shy away from. We should embrace it like King David in Psalm 119, where he's constantly praising the statutes, the ordinances, the commands, the rules, the law of God. Oh, how I love your law, how I meditate upon it day and night. Five, civil government is God's idea. He made it as a separate sphere, right, with certain authority, certain jurisdiction, as I've shown both from scripture and summarized here with this chart, every single person, every person, every family, every church, and even every king and nation is to pay homage to Christ, the king, by obeying his law word. They are to bend the knee, or to quote Psalm 2, they are to kiss the son. So the question for us today is this. What happens, what happens when Herod crosses the line? What happens when Pharaoh oversteps his bounds? What, what happens when Caesar is claiming sovereignty? What happens when Nebuchadnezzar tries to usurp King Jesus? What happens when all three branches of the United States government decide to make up their own laws as they go instead of implementing and obeying God's law? What happens when the Nazis show up to your door in the 1940s and ask you if you are hiding Jews, and you really are, Well, I can tell you the answer to that. You lie. Are Christians to unconditionally obey the civil government? If you say yes, then you have a major problem with the American war for independence. If you say that we are to obey everything handed down to us from the powers that be, then you have a major problem with over well over 20 different instances in the scripture where the people of God, including Jesus himself, refused to comply with tyrants. So this sermon, I fear, is much too late. It's long overdue. Much of the tyranny we face in our nation right now is because the pulpits in this nation have grown soft. Sermons during the war for independence covered this stuff. You can look it up. Most of it's free online. Most of the sermons that were preached were sermons like this, especially in a very pivotal time in our nation's history. But a lot of the, a lot of the preaching happened to apply the scriptures in ways that many of us just don't even know we can apply or should. Do we have permission to apply the Bible to this? Can we do that? Of course we can. But of course the church got lazy, got comfortable, and now here we are. We have problems. But like arithmetic, we can solve them. We have a growing socialistic government built upon theft. We have outrageous tax structures. You can't even die without getting taxed. We have corrupt politicians who don't know how to properly use email. We have a growing debt problem that is closing in on $20 trillion. Okay, I looked this up the other day. That's $60,981 per citizen. But you go ahead and not pay your bills and see what happens. We have states who are scared of the feds. They're so scared of the feds that they willingly take whatever opinion they give. Here's our opinion on marriage. Okay. Here's our opinion on murder. Okay. We have sodomy paraded in our streets. But last but not least, we are dismembering little babies at the rate of 3,000 per day. 
Our nation is in distress. Our country is in turmoil. The United States of America is absolutely and unequivocally under the judgment of God. And we need God to deliver us. So what are we supposed to do? Do do we just feel bad about it? Oh, man, that stinks. Or can we resist it? Can we resist tyranny somehow? So my main idea this morning is very simple. Christians have a right. I should have footnoted this, but a God-given right and responsibility to actively oppose and resist tyranny, but must do so using biblical means. This is all over the pages of Scripture. Christians, those who name the name of Christ, who are citizens of a kingdom that is greater than any kingdom of Pharaoh or Rome and Caesar himself, we have a right and a responsibility to actively oppose and resist tyranny, but we must do so using biblical means. Let's read our text, Ezekiel 22. We'll start at verse 23. I want to read the context. Think, of about, think about our country when I'm reading this. Ezekiel 22, verse 23. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests, her pastors, have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes, her leaders, right, in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them. Seeing false visions and, and um, divining lies and, and for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted the, from the sojourner without justice. Listen to this. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. I like the uh, NASB translation here on the screen. I search for a man among them who build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Standing in the gap. You know what our problem is anymore? We don't have many people who are willing to stand in the gap. What Ezekiel is talking about is the doctrine of interposition. We don't have many people who are willing, willingly standing in between the oppressor and the victim. Be it physically or legislatively, however you want to say it. We don't have many politicians who are willing to defy federal tyranny and say, we will obey God before we obey men. There are a few recent examples of the states, the United States, using their God-given constitutional right of 
what we call nullification. If the feds do something unconstitutional, the states have the right to nullification, to, to nullify, to not obey, to refuse to obey it. Thomas Jefferson, some of the other founding fathers wrote about the doctrine of nullification. There are a few cases in our country right now, if you've been paying attention, if you've seen this, few small cases surrounding abortion, particularly in places like Oklahoma and Texas. But for the most part, we have very few people who are standing in the gap, save for a a county clerk named Ken Davis and Justice Roy Moore in Alabama. People who are willingly putting themselves at risk to stand up for what is right. Now, this is in the notes on the app, but listen to this part of Patrick Henry's famous speech, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. You may have heard of it. He says this, Sir, we have now done everything that we could be... that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming. Remember, he's speaking at the, to the Virginia state level, the congressional level. We have petitioned, we have remonstrated, we, we have supplicated, we have prostrated ourselves before the throne and have implored its interposition, even uses the word, to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. Our petitions have been slighted, our remonstrances have produced additional violence and insults. Our supplications have been disregarded and we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the throne. In vain, after these things, may we indulge the fond hope of peace and reconciliation. In other words, Patrick Henry is saying, and he, he closes that out, give me liberty or give me death. He clo- he, he's saying, we've tried everything. We've exhausted every means of peaceful resistance. We've implored the king. We've implored parliament. But, but our nation is in turmoil because of their oppression, what do, we, what do we do? When the American War for Independence happened, it was done so biblically. The French Revolution, which was humanistic to the core, was not done biblically. The reason that we can morally and biblically justify the War for Independence, you ever wondered this? The reason we can do it is because of the doctrine of what we call the lesser magistrates. There's a book written by Pastor Matthew Truwalla. Um, I forgot to bring it up here. He wrote it in 2013. I have a few copies uh, at Connection Center if you want to purchase them. It's a great little book, not super long. Um, I've, I've communicated with Pastor Matt, and, and I read this a couple of years ago, and it's just a fantastic read. Uh, but he writes it. It's called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. The doctrine is a biblical doctrine, and it's a biblical means to resist tyranny. So we are to resist evil, biblical means, right? Righteously. We are not anarchists. We're not going to burn the place down. That's not what we do. We're also not statists, where we just do whatever the state says to do. Although those two things are actually the same thing. But we are biblicists, and we must obey the commandments of God, even when we are resisting the people who will not obey the commandments of God. So the doctrine of the lesser magistrates is scriptural, as I will show in a bit. It's also historical. When leaders that are not as high up in the realm of civil government, these lesser magistrates, they resist tyranny. They resist implementing something that God would hate. It shows up all over history. One of them was the signing of the Magna Carta, which happened in um, June 15th in the year 1215 where the lesser magistrates rose up and made the king sign a document. It's on the picture of the book actually out there. No, the, the, the picture's on the front page, <clears throat> the cover. 
It also shows up in history in the middle of the 16th century in Magdeburg, Germany, when Lutheran pastors resisted the tyranny of the emperor, Charles V, who wanted to suppress Protestantism and make sure that everyone became Roman Catholic. It showed up in the War of Independence when the elected representatives of the 13 colonies stood up to the British Parliament by declaring themselves officially divorced from all governmental ties. So the doctrine of lesser magistrates, and this is to quote Pastor Matt's book, says the doctrine declares that when the superior or higher civil authority makes unjust or immoral laws or decrees, the lesser or lower ranking civil authority has both a right and duty to refuse obedience to that superior authority. If necessary, the lesser authorities even have the right and obligation to actively resist the superior authority. In other words, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Resistance to evil law is actually righteous behavior. This conversation has happened a lot in history. And for some reason, we've just blindly thought, well, you know, 200 years of American history, we're good to go. It's land of the free. (laughs) Depends on what you mean by free. Conversations like this happen even happens even in the military. You know, I was just following orders has has really been a disputed thing on many occasions. Immorality at all levels must be resisted. Okay? Must be resisted. So that said, some of our some of our opposition is in fact political. Some of it is political. We can do politics. We we should do so as biblical Christians. We need to elect men with steel in their spine who will resist unlawful authority. Men who will stand up to tyrants and risk their own lives for the sake of the victims. So we do have political means because the state is not sovereign. God is sovereign. The state, as we talked about last week, has what we call delegated sovereignty. They're giving jurisdiction by God, and they must only do that which he says they can do. And when they overstep that bound, then they become a law unto themselves, which is really lawlessness, and they must be resisted. So the very existence of the state, again, it comes from God, not man. So like the apostles, we must obey God before submitting to the tyrannies of men. But not everything is using political means. Not everything. The Bible shows us many places where lawful and righteous protests happened against civil authorities. There are degrees to it, of course, and there are different principles at play, but Gary North has keenly observed these stages of biblical resistance. I'm summarizing them for you. He said the first stage of resistance. There is the individual who knows the law is wrong and protests it verbally. He obeys it, like we do paying our taxes now, even though they are unjust, most of them, but he lets the civil magistrate know what is wrong. I'm going to pay this tax, but I don't like it, and it's wrong. When David took a census contrary to what God wanted, Joab let David know that he didn't agree with it. David went ahead and did it anyway. Interestingly enough, the king sinned and the people suffered greatly, but Joab did not. Second stage of biblical resistance, as North points out, the protester 
the protester protests verbally and then refuses to obey the order. The protester then suffers the punishment. Daniel and his three friends, who were all lesser magistrates, they were all civil authorities, by the way, they refused to worship the image of King Nebuchadnezzar that he had made, the statue. That's Daniel 3. They, they simply refused obedience and compliance. Not doing it. Third, the protester rebels against civil authority, warning the civil ruler of the evil that he has done and is doing, but then he flees. He leaves the country. He runs away. Elijah the prophet did this. He warned of God's judgment and then he fled. That's in 1 Kings 17. John Knox, the famed reformer of Scotland, he fled several times after defying the queen. The Puritans did the same thing when they left and came to America. Fourth stage, the protester absolutely and unequivocally refuses to comply with the law. This person can't resist through normal institutional means, and so deception is actually used instead. In Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives resisted and deceived Pharaoh. In Joshua 2, Rahab lied to Jericho's authorities, and God actually favored her. So one can actually subvert the system by lying in a godly way. I know that sounds awkward, but lying to Nazis is actually seeking first the kingdom of God. The issue of lying is only permitted when the person who is asking wants to do harm. The fifth stage of biblical resistance. The people as a whole assemble to intervene and thus they tell the ruler that that he will not be allowed to enforce immoral law. Israel did this in 1 Samuel 14 when Saul was actually going to execute Jonathan for having eaten honey during battle, which Saul had made a stupid oath about it beforehand. The people said, no, you're not going to keep that oath. That's ridiculous. Thus, the attempts of Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights movement, peaceful assembly while making demands. Sixth stage of biblical resistance. A God-anointed protester warns the representatives of the people and challenges all of them to rebel against lawfully constituted authority. Elijah did this. Elijah the prophet got all the other leaders of lower leaders of Israel and they were instructed to kill the 850 priests of Baal and Asherah. That was in 1 Kings 18. Again, we're not anarchists. But there are biblical means for using arms and self-defense in just war. Seventh, a God-ordained lower magistrate joins with other officials and revolts against unlawful central government after a series of official protests. Jeroboam did this when Rehoboam imposed this immoral tax system, and thus the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, to be at peace with so to be at peace with all so long as it depends on you. So the question is, what if it doesn't depend on you? What if you are being peaceful, but there's an aggressor that continues? What happens then? Well, you defend yourself. Biblical self-defense is all over the scriptures, most notably in Exodus 22. But our position is one of peaceful resistance. Just war is the last option. When Paul Revere warned that the British were coming, right, and the possibility of war was now a very palpable reality, the Americans were told, by pastors no less, not to fire first. Don't you shoot a bullet Because God won't honor it. 
God won't honor that. He won't honor burning the streets and anarchy. He just won't. War has to be done in self-defense. And after the famous shot heard around the world, remember that, in Concord, Massachusetts, the war for independence began. It was a war where peaceful means were used and war was absolutely the last option. So both the English Revolution of 1688 and the American Revolution of 1776, both of those were actually morally justifiable and biblically justifiable because it was done on God's terms. Now, before we look up in Daniel 6 and wrap up, I wanna, I'm going to give you some more examples in Scripture which demonstrate our right and responsibility to, to oppose and resist tyranny, which, of course, means anything that the state does that God hasn't given them permission to do. If they contravene the law of God as, and, um, by refusing to do what God asks or asking us to do what God refuses of us, then we must resist because God is first. We already talked about Moses and his parents refusing Moses' parents refused to kill him per the order of Pharaoh. But instead, they made a small basket, sent him down the Nile in an attempt to deceive him, to deceive Pharaoh and and spare Moses' life. Later on in his life, interestingly enough, Moses would face the tyrant head to head and he would demand that God's people be released. Moses is a classic case of obeying God and resisting tyranny. We mentioned Rahab, right, in protecting the spies of Israel, which is a clear act of revolt against her leaders, David, King David, before he was really king, David fled from King Saul who wanted to capture David. Jonathan refused to obey King Saul who had ordered him to kill David. Michal, David's wife, deceived her father, King Saul, so that David could actually escape. Obadiah, who was a prophet of God, he, he defied Queen Jezebel and hid other prophets. That's 1 Kings 18.4. Elijah, the prophet, refused to answer when King Ahab summoned him. Uzziah, the king, tried to burn incense to the Lord on the altar when um, Azariah, the priest, actually confronted him for doing something that was reserved for the church, not the state. Jehu organized and mobilized the military to overthrow the wicked king Ahaziah and Queen Jezebel, which was actually in direct obedience to what God had said to do. King Zedekiah wasn't going to surrender to Babylon, um, but Jeremiah actually resisted him, this order, and he prophesied its impending surrender. Daniel and his friends refused to eat the food that was prescribed to them by the king. In Daniel 3, as we noted before, they didn't bow down to the statue when everybody was told to bow down. And we'll look at Daniel 6 in a moment. More examples Mordecai refused to pay homage to Haman as the king had ordered. Esther, if you know the story of Esther, Esther disobeyed the law by actually going in and entering the king's presence, which was punishable by death. King Herod wanted a report from the wise men of the east. Remember when they came to see him after they found out about the Christ child? He wanted them to come back, give him a report. But they didn't go back to Herod. They went another way after after leaving and seeing baby Jesus. Um, Herod made an unlawful edict to kill the children ages two and under. Instead of obeying Joseph and Mary, they packed their bags and left and went to Egypt. Peter and John and the other apostles, they refused to stop preaching about King Jesus despite being ordered to do so. The magistrates in Philippi, they actually asked Paul and Silas to leave. And Paul and Silas said, no. 
Our Lord Jesus resisted tyrants. Did you know that? Four times during his trials, Jesus refused to answer those who were interrogating him and examining, examining him. Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, and then Pilate again. He refused to perform a miracle when they told him and instructed him to do so. And Jesus refused to prophesy for them when they asked him to do it. There are stories, these stories, and there are lots more in Scripture. They're all, literally all over the Bible. All over the Bible. Turn to Daniel 6 real quick. Just a couple of pages back toward the end of your Bible. Daniel 6, and we'll, we'll pick it up uh, in verse 10. Now, <clears throat> give you some context before we read. Daniel 6, verse 10. Darius is king. He was a Mede who took over after Belshazzar, who was actually the son of Nebuchadnezzar, um, died. So Darius is king now in Babylon. Daniel becomes, he became actually through some process, one of the king's top guys. And Daniel was ready to be in charge of the entire kingdom. And, and, and Darius was ready to give it to him. Um, the other commanders who were around Daniel were very jealous of Daniel. And they tried to set him up, to trip, trip him up. Um, they were able to get Darius to sign a decree, an ordinance, that prevented anyone in the kingdom to serve another god except for Darius. So they got him to sign it and sign, sealed, and delivered, done. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel, Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, the thing, the, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. I want you to notice what Daniel did. Because this was an act of resistance to tyranny. It was open rebellion against a civil magistrate. As soon as, as, soon as Daniel was made aware that the document was signed, Daniel immediately went to his house. And the text says, where he had his windows already opened. Toward Jerusalem. Why do we need to know about his windows? What, what are they? They're opened. Which means what? People could see him. Daniel was openly defiant towards this unjust law. He prayed three times a day, giving thanks to God, as he had done previously, the text says. So Daniel's commitment to God never wavered or changed. I fear that if the government in our United States said for Christians not to pray, some people wouldn't have that big of a problem with it. Daniel's commitment never wavered, never changed. And so when things get tough, I think Christians sometimes are like Peter. They just, they deny, deny, deny Jesus. They waffle under pressure, but not Daniel. Daniel purposely prayed, just like before, where everyone could see him. And indeed, they did see him pay honor to his God and not Darius which the decree had actually prohibited. So Daniel's rebellion was God-honoring. It was seeking first the kingdom of God. When men are quick to honor God and remain steadfast, God is quick to save and preserve them. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. 
after this. And God spared him. And God used Daniel's resistance to immoral law to magnify his name in Babylon. Christians have a God-given right and responsibility to actively oppose and resist tyranny, but must do so using biblical means, which means we have to know what we're opposing. We have to know what tyranny actually is. Here's the deal. Whether you fully understand this or not, we are all revolutionaries. The moment a man is converted is the moment the world sees him as a revolutionary. The reason, of course, is because light is pushing back against the darkness Christians are the most revolutionary because Christians have been redeemed from slavery to sin by the blood of the Lamb and not just redeemed from something, set free to something, and that is to make war. Not through carnal means, not through satanic jihadism, through God's word. This is why understanding the covenant is absolutely so crucial if you remember the model, when we, we take seriously God's law and his word, we are placing ourselves in a visible manner inside of God's covenant framework. And Jesus didn't say, if you love me, you will buy a neat little devotional book and hide in your prayer closet. Jesus said, if you love me, which is to say, if you want to show and demonstrate to the world your love for me, It's not how amazing and articulate your prayer is before you eat your meal. It's not even how you feel, feel about Jesus at any point in any day. That's not the measure of loving Christ. Jesus said that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Romans 13 says that love is the fulfilling of the law. That's the definition of love. I don't know if you noticed with this election year, everybody's gone mad. Just crazy. The people on TV, their heads are going to pop off. There's so much emotion, so much, some of it unrighteous emotion. And like Wednesday, I'm excited to wake up and chill. Because we're all going to, whatever the outcome, like, we, yeah, God, Christ is on his throne, but... We need people to switch to decaf. <laughs> but love isn't, love isn't a feeling. It's a tangible expression which is measured by God's law word. Don't tell me you love God when you hate his law. Don't tell me you love God when you're not even remotely interested in his law. Don't tell me you love the Bible when you scorn the Old Testament. If a man is a lover of Christ Jesus, he proves it by how he loves God's commandments. So when we love God's commandments, we are giving a visible testimony to a watching world that we are going to be covenantally faithful to God before anything else. Our kingdom's citizenship is marked by obeying all that Christ taught. For that is what loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind is truly about. We are the revolutionaries. Since there is no neutrality, either we will attempt to live peaceably with immoral, the moral laws of Satan in our society and thus will be judged by God or we will revolt against these laws and receive the blessing of God. Satan has a pretend kingdom and the person who obeys his pretend kingdom is considered a law-abiding citizen by Satan. 
But in his ungodly kingdom, the person who disobeys his immoral law is considered a revolutionary. So whose side do you want to be on? Since there is no neutrality, no gray area in the middle, God calls the person who gladly and happily obeys lawlessness a covenant breaker. The person who resists lawlessness and seeking to obey and honor Christ is a covenant keeper. As Dr. North pointed out once, he said, whose definition of law-abiding citizens should we accept? Satan's or God's? Whose definition of revolutionary should we accept? Christ or Satan's? And the truth is, Christians... Christian revolutionaries see clearly because we have God's covenantal social order. We understand how the world works, why it works the way it does. And we have answers for everything under the sun because everything belongs to him. Which means that when something like Oberfell comes down from Pharaoh's courts, we don't say, ah, well, well, that's the law of the land. We have to obey it. We actually say this is lawlessness. There must be a practical fundamental break with Satan for all of us who name the name of Christ. And it must be visible. We're moving from death to life, which means it's working itself out in history. And we have to break from Satan's pretend kingdom here and now. And those, those, we must resist tyranny because it leads to death. Proverbs, Proverbs 8 says, those who hate God love death. So all of this ends in death. Because anything that goes against God leads to death. Homosexuality leads to death. It can't, you can't reproduce. It's a kingdom that is impotent. Abortion, death. We have a culture of death because people hate God and they try to atone for their own sins. Making a baby pay for their own sin. It's our job to rescue those who are being carried to the slaughter, both literally and figuratively. And how do we know this? How how do we do all this? Well, we make our king's wishes known. We preach all of Christ for all of life. We proclaim the good news of King Jesus. We minister at places like the, the abortion mill. We adopt children. We serve the needy, the poor, the brokenhearted. We gather in churches. We baptize our, our kids. We baptize converts. We take communion every single week. And we pray for God to destroy his enemies, per Psalm 83. Either men will repent or they will be damned. So we are Christian revolutionaries, which means we serve a greater king And it is he, and he alone, who gets our unconditional allegiance. Let's pray. Father. Father, in just two short days, we are going to elect our next commander-in-chief. We realize that we deserve far worse far worse than what we have. But we also know that your sovereign will is being worked out. We pray for whoever it is that's going to be elected at all levels, that this person would rule in such a way as to fear you completely. We pray that this next president would leave us alone and let us live in peace, per Timothy's instructions. We pray that this nation would repent and turn to you. We pray that you would end abortion now, that the bloodshed would stop and that lives would be converted through our witness. We pray for local elections and elections even at our state level. We we tend to elect people who think, speak, and act like us. Would you spare us from this reality? Father, I pray that each leader elected would fear you, would kiss your son and pay homage to him like they're instructed to do in Psalm chapter 2. I pray that whomever is elected 
would be brave enough to stand for your kingdom. We know we have some righteous people in office. Would you give them courage? Would you give them boldness? Would you give them clarity and wisdom? Lord Jesus, would you deliver us from further judgment by saving our politics? Holy Spirit, would you draw people to Christ, convert them and send them into the world to push back the darkness and exalt King Jesus? It's his name. I pray, amen.